This is our first uh, Sunday sitting of the, of the year. And it's always wonderful to see faces that I haven't seen in a while in the new year. <coughs> so hopefully that's an omen for, ev- for all of our practice, that our practice will um, really develop in this year of 2013. God knows the world needs it, right? Uh, we've had a really, I think, a really quite eventful 2012. And we all know that, you know, there isn't any, really any such thing as 2012, right? And there's really no such thing as 2013. Because actually, there's just presence. That time is a concept, it's an idea. And yet it's useful. It's useful because uh, we mark the passing of our lives, really, by um, establishing some way to measure time. So we can, we can be in both. We can be in the concept of time, and we can also be in the understanding that there's just this present moment. The concept of time can be useful in terms of Um, how we organize our lives and how we think about uh, what we want to do and what we don't want to do. (coughs) So I'm going to just be silent for a moment and allow people to come in. So as we sit here, Let us reflect for a moment on what it means to be human. What it means to be part of this grand experience of having eyes and ears and tongues and noses and bodies and minds and hearts. I was listening to the radio this morning and Krista Tippett had a recording of her 13-year-old son, Sebastian, whom she asked what he thought it meant to be human. And he said it, he thought it meant to be part of humanity and that meant that we needed to do our part as human beings thought it was a beautiful response for a 13-year-old or for even a 50-year-old. So let's just tune into this uh, knowing of what it means to be a human being sitting here in this sea of humanity. We're not human doings, we're human beings. So can we just allow this knowing, this understanding of being? Breathing, and knowing that we're breathing 
knowing that we have a body, that we have a mind, and that we have a heart. And then allowing that knowing to flow not only inward, but outward. And feel the presence of everyone else who is here. So that we're not isolated, singular beings. But we are part of a collective. As we sit in this room together, we're part of this collective that comes and goes. It comes together and it will break apart at the end of the morning just like everything else in the universe. And yet while we're here together, we can feel this pulsing, throbbing being. We become one, one body, one mind. And we can allow that to move out beyond this room, into this building, this city, this state, this country, this globe. That as we sit here, this body, this one body that we all are together, is part of a larger body. A breathing, moving, shifting, moment-to-moment pulsing body. We can even imagine ourselves above this Earth, seeing this blue planet floating in the sea of being. with its places of light and shadow, luminosity and darkness. And as we move beyond and beyond and beyond this blue planet, worlds and galaxies of which it is a small part. And we can feel the joys and the sorrows of this world within the context of those myriad galaxies. And imagine that this whole galaxy, all of these galaxies, this whole world is emanating from our own hearts. That actually as we pull back our cameras and our lenses and we get a wider and wider and wider view, what we realize 
is that this world is contained in this heart. And so we are larger than we believe we are. <coughs> so we are contained in the heart of the universe, and the universe is all contained in our own heart. from that place where we realize that entering into the heart, into our own hearts, we are entering into the heart of the universe, that they are not separate or apart. Can we feel what it is to be human? And radiating from this heart, then a kindness towards this heart, this body, and this mind, this singular mind, heart, and body. Understanding the preciousness of this human life, the privilege of becoming embodied in this particular life. And feeling its fragility and its tenderness turn our love towards it. Perhaps for some of us, that's not easy. Perhaps for some of us, we are conditioned and habituated to not valuing this life in which we are embodied. Let's see if there's even a small crack when we understand that each of us plays a significant and unsubstitutable role in this life. If this, if this body, when this body and mind disappears, it will be gone forever. We won't debate what happens to it, but it will be in this particular form, no longer. So can we value it? understand its preciousness while it's here. Perhaps you can do that by feeling the body, just feeling what it means to be in a body, sitting here in this posture. Seated, dignified, noble. if you can feel the outline of this body or if you look for an outline can you feel that there is really no limit to this body 
we touch it, touch the life that's within it. Feeling the sensations of the body, feeling the emotional body that's in this body, in this life, and feeling the thoughts that come and go, allowing them clear passage so that they arise, they abide as long as they need to or want to, and they disappear. So body, mind, and heart is precious life. notice that what keeps it alive is this breath, this simple journey of the breath that comes in and goes out. Allow the attention to rest in the rhythm of this breath whether it's a regular rhythm or an irregular rhythm, doesn't matter. Just feel it as it comes in and the sensations that are caused by its incoming and feel it as it goes out and the sensations that are caused by its going out. Some people notice it at the nostrils. Others notice it at the rising and falling of the chest. And still others notice it at the rising and falling of the belly. Let the attention gently rest at any of those places make it easy for you to know this life-giving breath. Sensations may arise in the body, 
come and go just like the breath. They pull your attention away from the breath, that's fine. Notice them as specifically as you can. Perhaps they're unpleasant pulling or burning or stretching or pulsing or vibrating. See if you can notice their arising and their abiding and their passing away. Without judging, without wishing them away, but simply really entering into this present moment with the breath and all of the other experiences that are happening right now. So that our attention comes into the present moment, however it is. Perhaps there are sounds that arise that pull the attention. Notice hearing, how it is to hear, how it is to have ears as a human being and have the sound enter the experience, come and go. Perhaps thoughts arise. We can treat them just the way we treat sounds or sensations. Notice their arising, notice their nature, how they quickly come and go unless we choose to engage. And for the time being, as we sit here, we can choose not to engage. Simply know the presence of thought, the arising of thought, the presence of thought, and the disappearance of thought. no thinking in a different way. And if neither, none of those experiences is happening, whether it's sound or sensation or thought or emotion even, simply allow the attention to rest easily, gently, kindly, without too much tightness or wanting, just allowing life to course through us in the form of breath, knowing it. And relaxed, easy, established way. doing and simply allowing being to be here.
in these last few moments of our sitting together, you see what it would be like to sit here, completely alert and awake to this present moment, to this breath that's moving in the body, without aversion to anything that happens, whether it's internal or external, and without desire for anything else to happen other than what is true right now. Just allow the heart to open to what is true, completely alert, without aversion and without desire. So we have a few minutes <coughs> for um, a couple of questions, if anyone has them, about sitting practice. About the instructions or about the practice itself. Yeah. So what did you do? So, so they were pleasant, and you found it pleasant. So what you can notice is really how much, you know, we get involved in the object, right? So in this case, the sound of the bells, what we call bells. I don't even know if they're bells, because somebody once told me that they're actually electronic, right? But I'm sure that some of us had this, you know, image of 
beautiful church bells, you know, like Quasimodo, like pulling the thing, and you know, because the mind can do that, right? And yet, all that's happening is there's a sound being produced somehow, and that sound, which I call the sense object, is hitting the ear, which we call the sense organ. Yes? And uh, uh, concurrent with that contact is a pleasant feeling. And it could just as easily be, maybe, was there anybody here who thought it was unpleasant? Uh, Okay, so somebody had, you know, the buzzer is coming. So, the, it's fine to enjoy them, right? But that's a kind of ordinary state of mind, a non-meditative state of mind. And, and I don't want to make it like, you know, this is good and this is bad. But in the, the meditation, so what, we're not putting a judgment on that, but, but in the meditation practice, what we're wanting to see is really how we are with what's arising rather than going out, which is our ordinary way of relating to the world. We go out into the object, there's a feeling of um, we like pleasant or unpleasant, if it's pleasant we like it, if it's unpleasant we don't like it, sometimes it's the opposite for for some people, but the great majority of people, if it's pleasant, then you know, we like it and we want it to continue and if it's unpleasant we hate it and we want it to go away and we'll do anything to make it go away. That's a kind of ordinary state of mind. So the meditative state of mind is to actually notice what's happening internally and not have the mind go out so easily into the external object. So you can notice it's ple- this is pleasant, there's a pleasant feeling here. Wow. This is pleasant. And to not uh, judge it as good or bad or wanting more or not wanting more, but just noticing what's it like to actually feel pleasant. What's it actually like to simply hear the sound and know that we're hearing and notice that and understand that. Because meditation is really studying this mind-body. So there's nothing wrong with enjoying the sound. And yet there's also an opportunity that arises with every single experience to know our relationship to it, because that's what drives our lives. When something pleasant happens, we want more and we'll do anything to get more. And when something unpleasant happens, we'll do anything to make it go away. And then notice how the struggle arises in life. There's no peace in that, because we're always moving out one way or another to try to control what happens externally. Anybody succeed at that 100%? Put your hand up, want to see you, right? So how do, we, how do we really establish peace in our lives? And of course, there's an asterisk there, because all of the activists in the room, will, will, their hair will start standing on end and saying, I will not accept injustice, right? Okay, so here we go. (laughs) 
So can you really right now just know what it's like to hear? Let go of idea of bells. Feel whatever feeling you feel. Notice what the feeling is. Hearing, hearing. Pleasant or unpleasant. <coughs> or neutral. Is that a different experience? Was it? Did you put your hand up if you felt that was different than the first time you heard it? Some of you were probably practicing before, too. So, um, it's a practice, right? And what begins to happen is we see how we can be with experience without struggle. And it doesn't mean, as I was about to say, it doesn't mean that we're not responding appropriately. As a matter of fact, when we're able to see what our, ex- what our relationship is to the experience, then we actually understand the experience more from an internal point of view. And how we decide to respond is more informed. Right? We're more informed with how it really is rather than being informed simply by the greed that we have for the pleasant or the aversion that we have for the unpleasant. Yes, please. Okay, so can we hold that until we're going to have another question period. So right now we just want to do this because we're going to stop in a moment. Anybody else in terms of, yes, John. Sort of, kind of. Um, and what I, what I mean by the sort of, kind of is that we have habitual reactions, right? So it's not like right away those reactions are going to disappear. Right? But what we're, in, what we're encouraged to do in practice is also to see those reactions. That's a lot of, that's really great information for us in terms of how we react usually and how, where that takes our lives, right? So if we try to like restrain ourselves and not, not react, then we start to get tight again and we start to struggle with what's actually true. But what may be true is that you know, we hear the bell and it's pleasant and we're enjoying it. Well, what's it like to enjoy it? Right? Or we hear the bell and we hate it. What's it like to hate it? As, a, as opposed to surrendering to whatever the, the, um, the habitual reaction is to the sound of the bell. So, but it doesn't mean that we can't know what our habitual reaction is to the sound of the bell. Right? So, it, it, so there, there are subtle levels that are happening with every experience. 
And with meditation, with the stillness and silence that we establish, we're able to keep going deeper and deeper and deeper in to see what's actually happening. Okay, so I'm going to stop there. Um, the, let's just do a, a bit of standing meditation. And what I'll do is, if anybody needs a bathroom break, to please um, come back quickly um, so that we can establish the room again quite easily. But let's do a standing meditation and just stretch according to what you feel your body needs. And as you move, allow the um, understanding of what's happening and what the feelings are in the body so that just because we're moving doesn't mean that we can't be meditative, doesn't mean that we can't know right now what's happening. So if you're moving the body, what does it feel like to move the body? What does it feel like to actually have to make your own decisions about how you're going to move your body rather than having somebody tell you how to move your body? And how is it? Where are, the, where are the places of tightness? Where are the pa- places of ease in the body? Notice how the places of tightness draw the attention. And yet, as there are places of tightness, there are also many places of ease. There may be one place of tightness, and somehow that's what we mind goes to. But notice that there are also places that feel perfectly fine, feel perfectly good and easy, and perhaps even pleasant. So notice those two. And just notice the feeling of moving, just as we were able to establish stillness in stillness, we can establish stillness in movement. So I'm going to chant before I start, uh, homage to the Buddha. And it's enchanted in Pali, but what it means is homage to the blessed, most realized uh, one, and those who are familiar with it are very welcome to join me. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. And I like to chant that just to. Um, remind myself as well as you that these teachings come not so much from me, although they are, um, they come through my experience, but they are, they come from a long line, starting with uh, Gautama Buddha, uh, 500 years um, before we started to count our own years. So this is the Buddha's advice to lay people. He says that there are five things well taught by him. He is the one who knows and sees the worthy one, the perfectly enlightened one, that are 
contemplated daily by women and men, by householders and monks. This is a, um, these are five contemplations that the Buddha gave as advice for us to constantly be aware of as we go through our lives as lay people. So what are the five? <coughs> Sorry. The first is I am of the nature to grow old. I have not gone beyond aging. This is to be contemplated daily. I am of the nature to become ill. I have not gone beyond sickness. This is to be contemplated daily. I am of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond death. This is to be contemplated daily. All that is delightful and dear to me will change and vanish. This is to be contemplated daily. I am the owner of my actions, heir to my actions, born of my actions, related to my actions, and abide supported by my actions. Whatever action I do, whether good or evil, of that I will become heir. This is to be contemplated daily. So aging, illness, death, the impermanent nature of all things, and karma, the fact that whatever actions we do, we will be heir to. And I wanted to give you that at the beginning of this talk, which is really a talk on intention. Because I think when we, um, when we contemplate these five things, aging, sickness, death, impermanence, and karma, we are contemplating the entire dharma. And the contemplation of this entire dharma is, that leads to wisdom will lead to freedom also. And it forms the ground for whatever practices we take up, whatever practices we decide to do. And essentially, uh, why we're here, it's not intended to depress you. It's not depressing, if you really think about it. What it is, is it's, en it's enlivening and awakening it allows us to wake up to what is really true, that as we sit here, we are aging. No question about it. I look in the mirror, I know that. It's so clear to me that I am aging. We're also dying. From the moment we're born, we're dying. And of course, every one of us has experienced illness. Every one of us. There's none of us we get a body, it's of the nature to get sick. And this constant changing and vanishing of what is dear to us, we need to really understand, because it allows us to let go. It allows us to not cling so much to what we think is near and dear to us and should never change, because that's not its nature. And the understanding of karma 
gets our attention, doesn't it? I'm heir to my actions. I'm heir to my actions. It gets our attention in a really, um, hopefully, awakening and enlivening way because we understand that what we do will determine the very nature of our own lives. So this forms the ground for understanding the power of intention. And I wanted to talk about intention because it is our first, um, it is our first week, our first Sunday sitting of the year. And so, you know, we make lots of um, New Year's resolutions. Now it's January 6th. So how many of you have already broken them? Right? You don't have to put your hands up. It's okay. <laughs> so on AOL a few uh, years ago, I opened up, when I was on AOL, I'm no longer on it because of these things. I opened up uh, my email, and it, it was like, you know, um, big bold letters, lifestyle. So it caught my eye. And it said, why did it catch my eye? Because it said, meditate your way to a thinner you. <laughs> so naturally, I was quite fascinated. I thought, oh, that's why I have a skinny body, I guess. So I called up the page, and it was entitled, Day Four, Just Breathe. And so it essentially went on to say that we could, bear, we could really essentially lose weight by meditation. So you can see that what you're doing here has untold side effects, right? <laughs> including thinner thighs. And it's a bit mysterious to me that somebody could claim that, because when I go on retreat and I eat two meals a day, I gain weight. I don't know what happens, but somehow it happens. So meditation for me is the opposite. So there's an, a mysterious element in everything we do. And we can initiate actions for all kinds of reasons. Right? And the quality of any action, even meditation, can is determined not so much by its outcome, but by the intention that we set when we do it. So a business person who undertakes mindfulness practice to be less stressed in order to get an edge over the competition will sow the seeds for very different results than the one who undertakes mindfulness to strengthen his or her uh, compassionate service to others. Can you feel that already? You know, just the intention. So we can meditate to get thinner thighs, or we can meditate to get an edge over the competition, but the quality of our heart space will not be affected, because that's not our intention, and so it's not what we will pay attention to. So I'll I want to talk about what perspective we take on uh, our practice. And I, uh, I don't remember where I read it yesterday, but I read something yesterday because I'm doing a, an online course on forgiveness in April, which I'm going to be 
a recording in January. So I've been thinking, relating a lot about forgiveness, thinking, really reflecting on forgiveness. And I read somewhere that, uh, oh, it was, in the, it was in, actually in the Sunday Times Magazine yesterday about um, restorative justice and uh, a woman who is really deeply involved in it who had been raped continuously by her father uh, when she was a child up until the time she was 14 and how it had colored her life it had essentially she was she was determined to become a lawyer so that she could put people that did that away and over time, it changed. And one of the reasons that it changed, she said in this article, was that she went to um, India. She went to Dharamsala, and someone, and she uh, met Tibetan people who were amazing in their beauty and their joy, who had had just as terrible experiences, if not worse, experiences than she had as a child, although one can't contemplate what could be worse. And she was amazed at how joyful they were. And she asked them, you know, how can you be so joyful? And they said, well, it sounds to us like something really terrible happened to you, so tell us what happened. And she told them. And they said, well, that's pretty terrible. And they, they uh, advised her to, talk to, the, to write a, a letter to the Dalai Lama for advice, which she apparently um, receives and she's, she went to his place and she gave the letter and they said come back in a week and you'll get a response from him and she went back in a week and when she went back they said well the Dalai Lama has granted you an audience when he read your letter decided that it was better to speak to you directly than to write you a letter. So she had a moment. She had some other, a private audience with the Dalai Lama. And the Dalai Lama essentially said to her that she needed to, the first thing, the first thing he would give her two pieces of advice. One was to meditate. And the second was to forgive father. And she said, well, she didn't see how she could do that. So he said, okay, just meditate. And she did. She came back to America and she went on a 10-day re silent retreat and she learned how to meditate. And in all of that, when she, and she practiced and practiced and practiced, and she said one day she just realized that she had indeed forgiven her father. So our practice of meditation is not so much, so our intention with our practice of meditation is probably the most important aspect of uh, the whole practice itself. How we decide to enter into our meditative life and the reasons that we decide may change over time. But what changes is not so much 
the meditation itself as the heart that we bring to it. And the heart that we bring to it is completely influenced by the intention. And the intention, of course, will also change over time because as our hearts change, so will our intention. See what I mean? So that there's, it's not as if anything is linear. It's all a field that we are establishing as we practice. And that field is influencing us and we are influencing the field. And of course, it's not only influencing us, but it's influencing the whole field of everyone that we encounter. So this wisdom from Krista Tippett's 13-year-old son this morning, that we are part of humanity and that we must do our part, comes into this whole field of practice that we do. Because all, everything that we do has consequences internally and externally. And as a matter of fact, in the, in the, um, in the Satipatthana Sutta, that where the Buddha essentially gives the instructions for practice, he doesn't just say, sit down and look inside. He actually 12 times encourages us, 12 times in this 10,000 word sutta, he encourages us 12 times to look internally, to look externally, and to look internally and externally. And by that third instruction, really um, tells us that the internal world and the external world are not separate, but that they're joined together. So the happiness and freedom, uh, or cessation from suffering, to which the Buddha pointed in his teachings, belong to the inner world. And this is why the Buddha emphasized that we attend to intentions. So the transformation of our intention, of the intentional base, is what actually uh, transforms our hearts and our lives. Because he also reminded us that where we put the mind, that's where it will incline. So the quality of each mind moment conditions the next mind moment. So if we start with a mind moment that is um, kind, that is compassionate, that, is, that has the intention to be kind and compassionate, the next mind moment will be kind and compassionate. If we have a mind moment right now where our, uh, that, that's full of hatred and that has the intention for revenge, the next night mind moment will be one of hatred and maybe even a plotting of how we're going to uh, carry out that revenge. So acting out our intentions reinforce our disposition and, those, and our disposition fuels our perceptions. So how we see the world is fueled by the, dis the disposition that we have. And we know that, right? Because if we, if we start out the day and we're, we're feeling kind of happy and joyful, things look bright. Even if it's a cloudy, rainy day, we can still feel 
things is bright. But if we started out in a kind of grouch and grump, then everything kind of gets darker as we go on. So the dispositions fuel future perceptions, our motivations, and eventually our activities. And that's how the wheel gets set in motion. We act on, on an intention, it brings certain results, and that result fuels our future activities. So actions that are motivated by anxiety and craving and aversion fuel our stress and our unhappiness. And actions that are motivated by understanding, by love, and by generosity reinforce openness and ease. So what the Buddha said about this is everything rests on the tip of motivation. Everything. So I remember another story with the Dalai Lama in 1981. I went and it was really my first retreat. I took teachings with him for seven days. And he had a, he had a, um, a translator called Jeffrey Hopkins, who was a beautiful um, Tibetan scholar. He was, he's American, but he's a, he was a scholar of Tibet. Tibetan language and philosophy, and brilliant, brilliant uh, linguist. And we would kind of giggle because the, the Dalai Lama would speak for about 15 minutes before Jeffrey would translate. And we were sure every single time that this was the one that he was going to not remember, right? Because the Dalai Lama would go on and on and on in Tibetan. Right, because he'd get kind of steam, you know, going, and he'd just go on and on and on, and we'd say, Jeffrey will never remember all of this. And it was amazing. He constantly did. But then um, there was one grueling, really particularly long and grueling technical passage, and, you know, I, I didn't even know what he was talking about, actually. And, the, and Jeffrey went, you know, started to translate, and it was very technical and very complicated and complex. And in the middle, and in those days, in 1981, the Dalai Lama's English was not good, right? And Jeffrey's like really going into this complexity, and suddenly in the middle of it, the Dalai Lama's, in about seven minutes into it, the Dalai Lama said, I didn't say that, <laughs> right? And then they started speaking, so Jeffrey turned to him, and they started speaking in Tibetan, right? And they went, you know, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. We had no idea. What was, um, and just in the middle of that, the Dalai Lama broke out in huge laughter, and he said, "Oops, yes, you are right. I did say it, right?" <laughs> and it was a beautiful lesson for all of us sitting there, because it honored the intention and the heart space that guides everything that we undertake. Here was this beautiful, amazing leader who was completely at ease and humble in accepting his fault, that accepting that he had made a mistake, and really beautifully um, modeling to us that there was no need for recrimination, that there was no need for aversion, for judgment, for blame, for anger, or anything, 
but just a reawakening of his intention and his willingness to commit and to recommit and to be wholehearted again. And so they, you know, then they went on. So we can achieve a better result when we're willing to appear to be less than perfect. And we, by prizing heartfulness over faultlessness, we reap more for, from our effort because there's a, ch- there's a chance for genuine transformation. So we learn and we grow and we're changed, not so much by what we do, but by how we do it and why we do it. And so when we practice with intention, and you know, as we were talking about the, the meditation instructions before, that we can keep dropping down into a deeper and deeper way of knowing our lives. We can drop deeper and deeper and deeper down into understanding our intention, into knowing how we do things and why we do things. So it's totally connected to the conversation that we were having about um, really being willing to, instead of being engaged and engrossed in the object, to really starting to understand our relationship to all of the objects that appear in our lives. So what is happening and what is our response? This is how mindfulness really works on our lives. As we practice more and more and more deeply and more deeply, we're beginning to see that quite clearly. What's happening and what's our result, our our response. So the clearer our mindfulness of what is happening and what what our reactions are to what's happening, the greater is our creative potential to respond. So mindfulness uh, places us where choice is possible, because we're seeing clearly what's truly happening. And when we see clearly what's truly happening, our choices begin to open and become wider. When we're not compelled simply by our reactivity to what's happening, and we are caught up in the external object, the, the, the choices are very narrow. But as we open and we are really aware and clear and awake, those creative responses become wider. So the greater our awareness, the greater our freedom to choose. Because people who don't see their choices do not believe they have choices. Right? If we, see, if we think we don't have a choice, then we don't. But if we really look and we start to see, oh, I can go this way or that way or that way or that way, and we really understand our intention and our base intentions, then that's what's going to fuel how we make our choice. And if we don't know what our choices are, are we respond automatically and blindly. And we're, what is that blindness? What is it influenced by? It's influenced by our conditioning and by our habit, by our circumstances. So mindfulness helps us to see our impulses before we act. So mindfulness helps us to see our impulses before we act and gives us 
the opportunities to decide whether to act and how to act. So according to traditional Buddhist teaching, every mind moment involves an intention. Every single one. Even when you move your arms or your legs, and we're constantly in motion. So there's phenomenal subtlety with which choices operate in our lives. Every action born of intention. And, mindful, and intentions are present even in such seemingly minute and unnoticed decisions as to where to, where to put our attention. Right? Because if you think about it, the mind is producing millions of thoughts all the time. Right? And, it, and we make a choice as to which one to choose and to expand and act on. So just as drops of water, as the Buddha said, will eventually fill a bucket, so the accumulation of all of these small choices of where we put our attention will shape who we are. So our intentions, gross or subtle, noticed or unnoticed, will contribute to our suffering or to our happiness or to the path to greater freedom. Intentions are like seeds. They're, um, so the garden that you grow depends on the seeds that you plant. Because if you plant an apple seed, you're not going to get a pear tree. Right? So whatever the intention, whatever the seed is of your intention, that's what will grow in you. So long after a deed is done, the trace momentum of that deed and of the intention of the deed remains as a seed and it conditions future happiness or unhappiness. So this is not small, this is not a small practice. And you know, we tend to think a lot of us when we're meditating, we're doing a meditation practice, but that's kind of it, right? So we, you know, this, this woman with the restorative justice, it, she was kind of, um, she must have been in a really beautiful meditative practice. Because usually there's a lot of work that needs to be done in order to forgive. But apparently she had so planted the seeds of intention to forgive that the meditation practice brought it out. For many of us, it may not be that easy. It may not be so easy that we meditate for a year, or we meditate for two years, or five years, or six years, and the forgiveness comes. But that there's a real um, conscious choice that we make to develop the intention to forgive. So my teacher, Jack Cornfield, said, how we act and what we do, what comes from our hearts creates how the world will become. This is the basic truth of the Buddha, that sorrow is caused by greed and fear, grasping and hatred, and happiness grows out of joy and loving kindness, openness and blessing. So it, intention is not just about our will or about these shaky resolutions that we make on New Year's Eve with shaky hope in our hearts 
but it's about our overall everyday vision, what we long for, what we believe is possible for us. So if we want to know what the spirit of our activities is, what the emotional tone of our efforts is, we have to look at our intention. That's what we need to look at. So once we start to understand that we are heirs to our karma, heirs to our actions, we begin to see the, because we understand that, we begin to see the longer-term consequences of our actions, and certainly, therefore, of our intentions. And hopefully, this teaches us for our future choices. It teaches us to um, ensure that our future choices, the future choices that we make, will be wiser, and uh, then wiser than what's based on our likes and our preferences, like the conversation we were having about the bells. Right? We can sit and enjoy them, and that is, that's perfectly wonderful and fine. And of course, is part of our humanity is that we enjoy what feels pleasant. And yet there's also a deeper place from which we can come. What is this? Can I see what happens when I really enjoy this how I want more? And how does that begin to become the mode in which I operate in my whole life? Right? Because it's not just that I want more and if I don't get it, I think it's okay. It's no, I want more and I'm going to get it, right? whatever the cost. And what is the cost? So is the intention really for happiness and freedom, or is it to get more and more? So what is your heart's deepest wish? Reflect for a moment, close your eyes and reflect. What is your heart's deepest wish? What is of greatest value or priority for you? We know that how our actions are responded to is completely out of our control. What the, the vast network of conditionality that directs the response is completely out of our orbit. Sometimes we need to just do the best we can and trust that our wholesome intention, wholesome intention will unfold in a way that we can't design or ordain. But to know what is our heart's deepest wish. What is it? So we know that a daily practice is helpful and supportive. So can you make one New Year's resolution that with your daily practice every day you will sit and spend a few moments reflecting on your deepest intention. Because in our busy lives we tend to forget too easily 
our values and motivations. So when we remind ourselves of what our motivations are, we are informed by them. And when we drop below the surface of craving and aversion and, dis- and discover what is the <coughs> deepest stirring of the heart, we will tap a tremendous reservoir of inspiration and of motivation. So I'll close with the words of Gandhi. He said, let our first act every morning be this resolve. I shall not fear anyone on earth. I shall fear only God. I shall not bear ill will towards anyone. I shall not submit to injustice from anyone. I shall conquer untruth by truth. And in resisting untruth, I shall withstand all sufferings and bring freedom to the world. So that's a pretty powerful example of reflecting on and setting a daily intention. Do you understand your own power sufficiently to have intentions as powerful as that? Because it's not as if Gandhi wasn't a human being, as are you. It wasn't as if the Buddha wasn't a human being, as are you. Don't leave it up to someone else to tell you what your deepest intentions are. You have tremendous power. And when you marry that power to love, you can have complete faith that that star that you set as your guiding star will lead you to the freedom and happiness that you set out for. I shall not bear ill will towards anyone or submit to injustice from anyone. Another way of including intention is to pause before initiating any new activity to discern your motivation. What is your motivation and how does it relate to your deepest intentions? Is the choice based on fear or greed or loneliness or addiction, or is it based on generosity and caring for yourselves and others? And of course, we have mixed motivations and mixed intentions. But the power of your practice is that you're able to know when they're mixed. And you're able to uh, separate the motivations so you understand which ones to act by. So I'd like to stop there to allow for some questions, but encourage you, as you spend these first few weeks of the year reflecting on what happened last year and what you'd like to have happen this year, to really be um, present with yourself and reflect carefully. What is it in your life that you have set your heart on? What have you set as your direction? And if nothing is apparent, 
then why not? And why is it you haven't set a direction? And how conscious do you make your commitment or direction or values? And how conscious is your resolve? And if you were to play with this quality of intentions for a day, what would you consciously set in motion? And what would you practice? If you were to take your own bodhisattva vows, what would they be? There's a Tibetan chant, all beings are the recipients of their own action, of their words and speech, their body and their minds. They are the heirs of their actions, born of their intention, related to the volition of their heart. Their actions produce their sorrows and their joys. Whatever they do for good or for ill of that karma they create, they will receive this. This is a chant of compassion. This is not a chant of vengeance, but a chant of compassion that all beings may understand this and that in the understanding of this, they will do what brings happiness. What brings happiness not only to themselves and their lives, but also to the world. And that is what I pray for you. In loving kindness and compassion, that you will understand this, uh, the power of intention deeply. And that from that, your intentions will be set. And of course, those intentions for kindness and wisdom and compassion will be the guiding, the, the North Star of your life. And it being the North Star of your life, that will bring happiness and freedom to you. Thank you. So we have a few minutes for questions, and there was a question about metta that I put off. So the the question is, can you, when you go to all beings, can you include people who are (coughs) deceased? So the, um, the, the technical um, instructions that come from a, a text called the Path of Purification, the Sudhimaga, it's recommended that we not include people who are deceased because the practice is really about our own heart. It's an internal practice even though we expand out and include all beings and include specific beings, the recommendation is that it not be, that you not include uh, beings who are deceased because then the the wishes kind of don't make sense. You know, may you be healthy and you may be happy and at ease and all of that. But I think if you recognize that, and you feel as if the inclusion of beings who were dear to you and whom you've lost, or even people that may not have been dear to you, that you lost before you could uh, reconcile, if you decide that that would help you develop and cultivate this heart of kindness 
I think it's okay to do it. But recognizing why the instructions, the technical instructions, are not to include either people who are, have died or people who, with whom you have a sexual relationship because, because it's too confusing. The sexual relationship is too confusing in terms of the quality of metta, which is an un- unconditional, unattached love. Yeah, so, you know, it's, it's not like we're going to practice and our minds are going to get narrower and narrower. Actually, they get wider and wider. So, to understand, there was, a, there was an insight buried in your question, which is how things change, right? They, do, they come and go. So, the, real, the, the visceral realization of impermanence is, is already there in your practice. And so when we, when we recognize and understand impermanence, we also recognize and understand there's nothing we have to do to make things come and go. Right? But how we've been habituated to thinking that our whole world is subject to our control or our power, and that if something is unpleasant or goes wrong, it's our fault or if something is going really well, how fabulous we are, right? You know, that somehow it's us. And that creates a lot of struggle in our lives. So simply the understanding that things can come and go without our having to do anything creates peace, right? We, we start to recognize that there's, we don't have to have some, we don't have to First, have an opinion about every single thing that's happening. And secondly, we don't have to do something about every single thing that's happening. It doesn't mean we become um, inert protoplasm, <laughs> right, and not do anything. But our choices become wiser. And as I said, what we decide to pay attention to and what we decide to respond to becomes a more creative way of responding to all of you know, the multiple stimuli that we're constantly subjected to. If we're trying to uh, control and react to every single stimulus that comes along, it makes our lives pretty hectic. So, so you're, you're already seeing that, oh, it's possible to just simply let something arise, abide for a while, and pass away, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, without the extreme reactivity that we're habituated to. And then there are times that we do need to act, yeah. yeah. You know, if, if, it, if somebody yells fire or you smell smoke, it might be a good idea to not just sit and say, smoke, smoke, <laughs> unpleasant, unpleasant, but to get up and leave, right? 
but also it doesn't mean that every time we feel a little bit of a twinge in our in our knees that we need to get up and go running out of the meditation hall either so you know we're not because we're meditating doesn't mean that we've lost our discernment or our wisdom one more did I see a hand here? So again, it's the same thing, right? We have some discernment. So if we're going to injure ourselves, of course we should move. But a lot of the time, we'll get a twinge in the knee or a twinge in the back. And we can actually, in meditation, see how the mind takes some small, just tiny little experience and blows it up completely out of proportion. So. I know, you know, from sitting in long retreats and sitting for long periods of time, that I've watched my mind go from, oh, burning, burning, oh my God, you better get up, oh my God, you better move, oh Jesus, if you don't, they're going to come and get you. They're going to have to because you're going to be stuck here forever, and it's going to be really embarrassing, and you're going to lose the leg, right? And what's it going to be like to be one-legged? You know, and you know, oh, you better move, right? So I can actually watch the mind doing that and not move. But there's also a, there there are a couple of ways of working with it. One is to know to to pay attention to it, to pay attention to the unpleasantness of it, and also much of the time, what I noticed in these long sits is that it would come and go. But that if I grabbed onto it, if I decided that that's where the mind was going to go and I engaged in it, I would move long before I would see and get the wisdom, the visceral understanding of how things do come and go. That's the first thing. The second thing is that when there's an unpleasant feeling in the body, as I was saying when we were standing, that's not the whole body, right? But if we choose to pay attention to it, it can feel like that's the whole body, that there's nothing pleasant going on anywhere. But if we make a choice of, oh, so I'm going to see where else and what else is happening in the body. And there may be some tingling in the hands, or there may be a pleasant feeling in the head, or in the little finger or the belly, some warmth or some feeling of safety. And I can pay attention to that, and I can actually pendulate my attention between those two things. And what I'll notice is that the, the discomfort will come and go. And there's also the wisdom of, I don't want to do this anymore. This is unpleasant, and it's becoming much too unpleasant, and I want to move. And, to, and can you do that, understanding the discernment that produces that, and also not feel as if it's a defeat? And it's not a defeat if you can stay mindful of what happened, the feeling that arose, the uncomfortableness of it, the discomfort of it, the unpleasantness of it, the decision to move, and now the actual movement itself. So that your meditation, so that nothing that arises in your meditation is a distraction. Everything becomes included in your meditation, including what you get engaged in, what you put your attention on, 
how it feels, the pleasantness of it, the unpleasantness of it, what you're thinking about it, what you're feeling about it, what it feels like actually as a sensation in the body. So just that one little twinge can become a whole way of paying attention right now in this moment without aversion or greed. Aversion to what's happening or greed for something else that's happening. And if those two arise, aversion or greed, to also pay attention to that. So that we're so that our meditation is not about being, you know, some transcendent being sitting here with absolutely no feeling. It may happen. It does sometimes happen from time to time in meditation that the body isn't felt at all. But that's rare. So most of the time there's something going on in the body and we want to pay attention to it. But we want to really um, cultivate a quality of attention that's wise and kind and compassionate. So that's all we have time for. Thank you. So as we set our intentions for uh, every moment of our lives, I know for me, one of my most prominent intentions is to meet the world with kindness, to meet every human being who is precious and irreplaceable with dignity and respect, compassion and kindness. And we have a, um, a practice of what we call metta, or loving-kindness, that cultivates that heart, that keeps reminding us that we can meet every being, even the ones that we find difficult, with that spirit. So I'd like to close with um, a short metta meditation. First, for all of the beings that we have um, known about this last year, who've been in difficulty, whether it's the, the um, children of Red Hook or other beings who have been um, faced with violence, with addiction, with abuse. And just think for a moment that most of us live in a place of safety where we have a home and food to eat and clothing to wear and that there are many who don't, who may be homeless or jobless, addicted or mentally or physically unable to take care of themselves. And can we send uh, kindness and compassion, not only to ourselves, all of us sitting here, but to all of our fellow beings who are in the midst of difficulty. And we have traditional wishes for their safety, for their peace and happiness, 
for their health and for their ease for not having to struggle so much with life. May all beings, including those who are in real difficulty now, be safe from harm, inner and outer, from danger. May all beings, especially those who are in difficulty, be happy and peaceful. May all beings, especially those who are in difficulty, be healthy. And may all beings, especially those who are, diffi- are in difficulty, find some ease and lessening of the struggle of being alive. And right now I'd invite you, if you have particular people in your lives, that you would particularly like to remember now to say their name out loud. And we include all of these beings who have been named and those who have been named silently in this field of kindness and compassion wishing for their suffering to end. May their suffering lessen. May their suffering end. May they live with ease and without struggle. May they know kindness and compassion. so much for coming. Happy New Year. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.